0: Our series is called Song of Solomon, Here Comes the Bride. And today we begin a study of one of the most unique books in the entire Bible. It is also one of the most disputed and difficult books to understand. At one point, it actually looked like Song of Solomon might even be excluded from the canon of Holy Scripture because of its frank descriptions of sexual love. But the Jewish people have always revered this book. They still read it every single year during the feast of Passover. Do you know why? Because it paints a picture of an engagement, a wedding, and a marriage. Israel was engaged to Jehovah on the night of the Passover when he chose them and delivered them from Egypt. And Israel was married to Jehovah on Pentecost when the nation accepted the covenant that we know as the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. So there was an engagement, there was a wedding, and then the marriage. Just before Israel entered the promised land, Moses spoke these words over the people. He said, for thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And when we read the Bible, you know that Paul gives us permission In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that everything that was written to Israel was also written for our examples upon whom the ends of the world are come. So as I read these words, I'm not just thinking about Israel and Jehovah. Of course, I'm thinking about Jesus and his church. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. Because to be frank, you were the fewest You were the least of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, that's why the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore, That the Lord thy God, he is God. He is the faithful God. He keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You may not have a lengthy pedigree in Pentecost, but let me tell you something. When you became a believer, you blessed your family tree in every possible direction. His mercy flows down through our family trees. His love flows down through our family trees to a thousand generations. Now on the surface, Song of Solomon is a book of romantic poetry describing with frankness and yet with purity, the physical attraction of a man and a woman to each other. This book shows human sexual desire as God intended it to be expressed, not pornographically nor prudishly, because those are both harmful extremes, but rather in purity. The Bible refuses to divide the sexuality of human beings from their relationship with a holy God because our creator is also the originator of our sexuality. This modern idea that we are merely biological creatures in a purely physical world and that we can have loveless sex That is not evidence of our sophistication. That is evidence of our spiritual poverty in the modern era. Now, many pastors and churches have used Song of Solomon for a Bible study on courtship and marriage or even for a premarital counseling course. Those are truly biblical, helpful, and practical purposes, and I commend them for that. However, we simply cannot discover the deepest meaning of this book until we look past its description of human love and we see in it a depiction of a much greater relationship between humanity and God. The Jews always understood this little book to be an allegory of the love between Jehovah and Israel. In the New Testament, we understand it on an even deeper level as an allegory of the love between Christ and his bride, the church. And aren't you grateful to be his bride, the church? What a privilege that is. Despite many debates and disputes over all the details of this little book, we can learn much from the song of Solomon if we will just open our hearts to our heavenly bridegroom. Now... Because this book is ancient Eastern poetry, it's written like that. It doesn't follow a clear, linear A to B to C thought progression like modern Western writing generally does. Instead, this book, this love poem, it flows back and forth between various speakers It shifts seamlessly from scene to scene without much of a definite storyline at all. The poetry kind of circles back on itself a couple of times in dream sequences, and its themes are developed through repetition of key moments and key phrases, and it goes without saying that all the images and metaphors used by the bride and the bridegroom here, as they describe each other, please hear me, they cannot be taken literally. Your neck is like a tower. Your teeth are like shorn sheep. Your hair is like a flock of goats. You look like Solomon's horse. None of those are meant to be taken quite literally. Now, in this little book, scholars can usually determine who is speaking in the Song of Solomon by looking at the Hebrew pronouns. In other words, if a pronoun is masculine, it's him speaking. If it's feminine, it's her. If it's singular, it's the bridegroom or the bride. But if it's plural uh, masculine, that's her brothers. If it's Plural feminine, that's the daughters of Jerusalem and so they can generally tell kind of who's speaking. And so most modern translations of the scripture try to indicate that in some way. 410 years ago, the King James Version translators, they didn't even attempt to do that. And the scholars can't be hundred percent sure in every case anyway, So it's still open to debate 410 years after the King James and and probably 3,000 years after this was written. It's still open to debate and to further study as to who is actually speaking at every single instance in the book. And that's why if you look at translations of the scripture, you can see differences as far as who's speaking if it indicates that. But despite all of these obstacles... There is still pretty broad general agreement on the structure of this book, and it's helpful to recognize it as we study. This is going to be a kind of classical Bible study, and I love this the best. Uh, The three sections of this book describe the bride and the bridegroom, first in their engagement, then in their wedding, and then in their marriage. And those three sections, they're separated by two haunting dreams that are experienced by the bride when she fears for a moment that her beloved, her bridegroom, has left her. Now, if you take it as a whole, this beautiful portrait of marriage has three parts. Leaving, cleaving, and weaving we leave our family of origin, we cleave to each other as husband and wife, and then we weave a new relationship together for the rest of our lives. And so that's basically the structure of the book, and we'll be kind of hopscotching around a little bit because the book hopscotches around a little bit. But a good place to begin would be chapter one, verse one, so that's what we'll do. The Song of Songs which is Solomon's. The author of this book, of course, is Solomon. He is mentioned seven times by name. Now, this is King Solomon. He's the son of King David, the third king of Israel, and he is the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived. He presided over what historians call the golden age of Israel. When the entire nation lived in peace and prosperity, when the glorious temple was constructed, and when people from distant nations traveled all the way to Israel just to hear Solomon's wisdom and to see his wealth for themselves. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings 4 that Solomon spake 3,000 proverbs and his songs ...were a thousand and five. During his lifetime, King Solomon collected three thousand wise sayings... ...that he shared with his subjects as he spoke to them... ...as he addressed them, as he interacted with them. However, the book of Proverbs collects only a few hundred of these in written form. Undoubtedly, Proverbs, what we have left in the Bible is the Proverbs, the wise sayings that Solomon considered to be the most important or valuable. In a similar way, although Solomon wrote a thousand and five songs, he was a true one-hit wonder. Only one song survived for us to read. It is called the Song of of songs. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's like saying holy of holies or king of kings or Lord of lords. This is the greatest. It's the chiefest. It's the top and the most superlative and the most important. It is the greatest of all songs. Everybody knows about Solomon's failures later in his life when he married many wives in order to establish peaceful and profitable political relations with all these different countries. In doing so, that might have been smart politically, but in doing so, he became entangled with the gods of these pagan women. He violated the law of the Lord, and eventually he turned his heart away from the God of his father David. That's the end of Solomon's life. The Bible says in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. But Song of Solomon is so wonderful because it comes before all that. It predates all that mess. It comes before that season of backsliding. So it's a wonderful book. This little book was written in his younger years. And it tells the story before the other 699 wives and the princesses and the 300 concubines. This little book tells the story of his first and his greatest and his true love. The early reign of King Solomon was the greatest time in all of history to be an Israelite. And 1 Kings, that historical book, paints a magnificent picture for us. This is what it felt like to live in Israel under the reign of young King Solomon. The Bible says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much. And he gave that leader largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. There was nobody that came even close to Solomon's wisdom and his compassion for the people of Israel. He was a beloved leader. The Bible says, All King Solomon's drinking vessels, the cups, the goblets on his table, they were made of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, one of his other palaces, they were of pure gold. Watch this. None were of silver. Solomon wasn't going to have any old ratty silver goblet on his table. Silver was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. They didn't even value silver in Israel in the time of Solomon because gold was so plentiful and Solomon had so much of it. So silver, that was like Tupperware in the days of Solomon. They only used gold vessels. It's an amazing time in Israel's history. There has never been a kingdom quite like this in a season like this. And then the Bible says also in 1 Kings, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan, that's in the north, even to Beersheba, that's in the south, all the days of Solomon. During his entire reign, it was peaceful. During his entire reign, it was prosperous. It was the greatest time in all of Israel's history but that's an odd statement right there, isn't it? Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. It's almost like the nation of Israel had turned into one big garden, one beautiful, spectacular paradise. And it really did during the early reign of King Solomon. Nowhere in scripture... Are there as many references to nature in such a short span of verses as there are in Solomon's Song of Songs? He was a student of architecture, absolutely. But he was also a student of nature. And that love for nature showed up everywhere in his kingdom, especially in those early years. The Bible says about King Solomon, "...and he spake of trees." The man talked about trees. From the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even under the hyssop that springeth out of the wall, he spake also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fishes. He loved God's creation and he knew about trees. Later in his life, he writes these words in Ecclesiastes. He says, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and here he goes, and I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Solomon planted trees everywhere. He loved the beauty of a garden and it was his goal to turn that little desert kingdom of Israel into a blossoming garden, and he did it. Now, across cultures, and even in our own English language, there are many idioms based on the image of a tree. You know many of these. You've known them for years. You know them by heart. We say things like this. Money doesn't grow on trees. We say, don't go barking up the wrong. We say, the apple doesn't fall far from the... And we say, he can't see the forest for the trees. We even say, when somebody has done something absolutely stunningly stupid, you're out of your tree. That statement is actually uncomfortably close to the truth in the pages of the Bible When you talk about the human race, you are out of your tree. In a very literal way, King Solomon became the builder and the rebuilder, not just of beautiful buildings. He rebuilt the lives of his subjects. And the garden kingdom that he planted in the nation of Israel, it's intended to make us think about another garden and another kingdom that was planted many, many years earlier by another king. The story of the human race, the story of your life, the tragedy of sin, and the triumph of Jesus and his beautiful bride, they all begin under a tree in a garden in the opening pages of Scripture. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And it was there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and every tree that is good for food. He was just like Solomon would be later. He just planted trees everywhere. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. King Solomon wrote three books in your Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And those three books pass down the legacy of his wisdom to future generations. But they do it in a somewhat surprising and quite profound way to fully appreciate Solomon's wisdom we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God created the first man and woman and God himself instituted the very first marriage. God commissioned Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and verse 28 to have dominion over the world he had created for them. He wanted them to live in intimacy and love Literally, God set Adam and Eve up to become them and their descendants, the kings and the queens of God's creation. But in order to rule a kingdom, you have to be wise. And human beings, from the very beginning in that first garden, under that first tree, human beings have always had a choice as to how to gain that wisdom. We can live according to, to God's wisdom, which always leads to life, or we can choose to become wise in our own eyes. And unfortunately, that's exactly what Adam and Eve chose. When they stood under that tree, in that garden, in the first book of your Bible, they took the, the fruit of the knowledge of of the tree tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They took that fruit into their own hands. They chose in that moment to eat of the one tree that God had forbidden. He gave them his world. He gave them that garden. He gave them every other tree. He gave them a beautiful place to live, to love each other, to have intimacy between each other and intimacy with him. But in that fateful moment, they chose to take it into their own hands. They took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose to go after their own idea of wisdom. Here's the only command God ever gave them. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Only one command. And we can look back and we can puff up with our arrogance and we can look down our nose at Adam and Eve and say, How stupid is that? Just one command. But how many people do you know? Maybe you know somebody that you've looked at in the mirror recently that disobeyed one of God's very plain commands and paid a price for it. You see, that's the human condition. They didn't drop dead that second. God wasn't talking about that kind of death, physical death, where we have your funeral. He was talking about a far worse kind of death because immediately the intimacy and the love that Adam and Eve had shared with God and shared with each other in an instant, that intimacy and love was shattered and broken. Instantly, they realized that they were naked And the shame and the guilt was overwhelming to them. Sin has now entered the world through the deception of the serpent and the desire of their flesh. And so they scramble to make clothes, to hide their bodies from each other, and they even attempt to hide from God. Their choice to become wise in their own eyes has led to division and death. And it always does. And it always has. And it ever will. The Bible says, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden of the, in the cool of the day. That beautiful time of day when God himself came to visit with them, to walk with them, to talk with them. It had always been a joyous time. It had always been the anticipated moment of every day, but not this day. Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. If you pause and think about it, it's heart-wrenching and heart-breaking because they have this opportunity that you can scarcely believe, and yet they squander it. By stubbornly choosing their own way. And now they've lost it. They've broken it. The word of God. While it gives us the laws of God. And while it gives us the commandments of the Lord. This word of God that we preach. Has great compassion for broken people. And hurting humanity. And shattered lives. And dashed dreams. Because that's where we got started in that garden, under that tree. And yet this sad story holds out hope for some future human being, somewhere, sometime, someone, who will finally make the right choice and rely on God's wisdom instead of their own. Somebody like King Solomon, maybe, who will actually pray this prayer at the beginning of his reign. God, give therefore thy servant an understanding heart. Help me to judge your people. Watch this prayer. That I may discern between good and bad. That's what got them into trouble in the Garden of Eden. God, give me discernment so I'll know to recognize your wisdom instead of just choosing my own wisdom. Let me know between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? I'm overwhelmed by the task. I'm overwhelmed by the job. I'm overwhelmed by the responsibility. But God, I'm praying to you that you would give me the discernment to know what is good and what is bad. What is your wisdom and what is just human wisdom? Solomon's prayer was to rule Israel with God's wisdom. And that is exactly what began to happen In the early days of his reign, Solomon just about reversed the failure of Adam and Eve. His choices to follow God led to abundance for everyone in Israel. In Solomon's day, you remember, every man sat under his own fruit tree. That's what the Bible says. It was like the Garden of Eden all over again for a while. But then Solomon failed. He married hundreds of women from other nations, and now they began to affect his choices, just like Eve had affected Adam's choice in the Garden of Eden. The king, the king who had constructed God's holy temple on Mount Moriah in the City of Jerusalem, that same king now covered the hillsides of Israel with altars to the pagan gods of his wives. The wisest man who ever lived ignored his own advice and he himself became responsible for Israel's long, torturous descent into self-destruction. The kingdom would fracture into civil war just months after Solomon's death and it would never fully recover. It didn't make sense. But sin never makes sense. In his later years, Solomon was out of his tree and his magnificent kingdom his garden kingdom would pay the ultimate price. When we read in the scripture, the three books written by King Solomon, if we are alert and attentive and we're listening for God's word in the middle of the words on the page, when we read these three books written by King Solomon, we can learn wisdom from his successes and we can also learn wisdom from his failures as well. Proverbs is well known among the three, for it's hundreds of short, memorable sayings that teach us how to live by God's wisdom, like this one, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding, Even when the commandment doesn't make sense, know that your heavenly father would not give you a commandment if it was not for your good. So trust in God's wisdom. Don't live by your own wisdom. Don't lean on your own understanding. But instead, trust God with all your heart. Let me tell you, our God can be trusted. He's never harmed anyone. He's never hurt anyone. He wants everything for our Good. In Proverbs, when you live by God's wisdom instead of your own, that's called the fear of the Lord, reverence for God. That's what it's called when you live by God's wisdom instead of your own. You have the fear of the Lord. The Bible tells us in the opening paragraph of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, it's ground zero, it's the starting place of wisdom. But Proverbs isn't just memorable sayings. It also contains a lot of poetry. There are nine chapters here of speeches from Solomon to his sons, the princes in Israel. He tells his sons, you pursue God's wisdom. And in this book, in the poetry parts of it, he symbolizes God's wisdom as an elegant woman. You remember in the Garden of Eden, the man and the woman's love and intimacy were violated by their failed search for wisdom. But fast forward to Proverbs, and now those who follow God's wisdom, they become what Adam and Eve failed to be. They become wise rulers of their own selves, and then by extension, they become wise rulers of their home, of their marriage, of their family, of their finance, and of the world Around them. Proverbs even tells us that when we embrace this lady called wisdom, we are actually taking hold of the tree of life. In Proverbs, now we are the ones in the Garden of Eden. Proverbs is teaching us that we all stand before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil every single day and every single day we have our own choice to make. And that's why Solomon keeps hammering the message home. Choose God's wisdom. Not the world's wisdom, not man's wisdom, not the wisdom of the flesh, not the wisdom of your intellect. Choose God's wisdom because when you choose God's wisdom, you are choosing life. And the image is this lady wisdom. And if you choose her, if you embrace her, if you go after her, she is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her and happy is everyone that retaineth her. It's Proverbs where Solomon says, with all you're getting, get some wisdom, get some understanding, get some knowledge of God. Don't just get worldly wisdom, get God's wisdom. It's amazing. Now, Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon at the far end of his life. He's now an old man, and he offers some sobering reflections. He says in Hebrew, life is hevel, which is the Hebrew word for vapor or smoke. And life is hevel, life is vapor or smoke, because smoke and vapor are unpredictable and they're uncontrollable, just like life. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes is constantly talking about life under the sun and what he means by that is life outside the ideal environment of the garden of eden it's just life under the sun it's life with all its pain and sin and mistakes and hardship and it is confusing and difficult when you live life under the sun life is hevel it is like vapor or smoke it is unpredictable it is uncontrollable He opens the book by saying the words of the preacher, no question who he is, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Here's his punchline it's the whole book. It doesn't get any better than this Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vapor, vapor, everything's vapor. It's just smoke and mirrors. You go to lay your hand on it and it disappears. You go to kind of choose this path and all of a sudden it's just confusing and none of the options make sense. You see, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon's writing with a lot of experience under his belt. Not all of it very good. And he says, human existence, your life like vapor is unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. And so, your life is essentially unfair. Even when we live by God's wisdom, life can be full of hurts and disappointments and suffering and loss. And it all leads up to the ultimate loss, which is the loss of your own life, your death. It is depressing to think about. Don't read Ecclesiastes when you're on a downer. We'll have to go retrieve you from a bridge somewhere. It's depressing. And yet, despite all the things we cannot control... There is still, even in Ecclesiastes, even after Solomon's life of hurt and pain and backsliding and bad choices, there is still one thing, Solomon writes, that we can control and that is our choice whether we follow God's wisdom or not. At the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says, and if the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if the tree, remember, he knows a lot about trees. And if the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. You go back out into the woods 10 years later, and it's decayed on the spot. Wherever it fell, that's where it lies. In Ecclesiastes, we are compared to a tree that grows up and lives for a few years and then falls down and never moves again. The decisions that we make in this life absolutely determine our destiny in the life to come. There is an eternal garden kingdom and a tree of life waiting on the other side. So Solomon said, I messed it up. I'm a failure, but let me tell you something. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Make sure that your decisions now are the decisions you want to be etched in stone when you die, because they affect your destiny after you die. In Proverbs, humanity's pursuit of wisdom was symbolized by a man pursuing Lady Wisdom in a garden. But now in Song of Solomon, his third little book, it is the woman this time who is searching and longing for her beloved. This time, Lady Wisdom is pursuing humanity so that we can have life. And the book of Song of Solomon, it's only eight chapters, but it ends with a poem about how this woman's love is more powerful than death itself. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. Love is powerful stuff. And when you're talking about the love that we have for God, and the love God has for us. That's the picture here. That's the story behind the story of Song of Solomon. Love is stronger than death, love is like a fire that burns, love is so strong. That many waters, many troubles, many trials, many setbacks, many hurts and disappointments and losses, many waters can't quench love. They can't drown it. They can't stamp it out. That's the love God has for us. The Song of Solomon is meant to be understood on two levels. Yes, it celebrates human love and intimacy but it also points to humanity's ultimate purpose. We, you and me, we were created to have love and intimacy with God and to follow his wisdom. That will allow us to be united with him. And for all of you married people, it will allow you to be united with each other. We become Wise rulers if we follow God's wisdom. Wise rulers of our temperament. Wise rulers of our passions. Wise rulers of our homes. Wise rulers of our individual worlds. And that's why the Song of Solomon, this eight-chapter rambling, rambunctious little poem. That's why it ends... With the bride and the bridegroom, united in love and intimacy, in a garden filled with trees. Thou that dwellest in the gardens, she's talking to him. The companions hearken to thy voice, cause me to hear it. Boy, that's a prayer. Jesus, other people hear your voice. Let me hear it. Other people They can discern your will. Let me discern it. Other people have seen you perform miracles. Let me see that, Jesus. I want to have that love and intimacy with you. I just want to pray. I'm like literally four paragraphs from the end of these notes. But I'd like somebody to lift up your hands and just pray Lord God cause me to hear your voice. I need to hear your voice every day. I need to hear your voice before I start my day. I need to hear your voice over my decisions. I need to hear your voice over my home. I need to hear your voice as I'm raising my kids. I need to hear your voice as I'm trying to love my husband or my wife. I need to hear your voice as I walk in a world full of temptation. I need to hear your voice when I walk through trials and through troubles and through deep water and even through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus, I just need to hear your voice. Cause me to hear it. Cause me to hear it. Cause me to hear it. Oh my. You were created for relationship with a heavenly bridegroom. You're his bride. He loves you and he pursues you. But the song of Solomon is not mostly about Solomon pursuing her. It's mostly about, she does most of the talking in this book and I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions from that. (laughs) She does most of the talking and in this book, it's not so much him pursuing her. As it's her longing for him. It's not so much Jesus pursuing us. What more could he possibly do to show us that he loves us? Now, it's really more about us pursuing him. Cause me to hear your voice, Jesus. Cause me to hear your voice. Jesus is our bridegroom. And we are his bride. And he paid For this wedding, he paid for this church with his own blood. He reversed the curse that fell so many years ago. Under that tree in the Garden of Eden. And you know how he did it? By taking the curse into himself when he died for our sins on the tree, on the cross of Calvary. Paul wrote these profound words. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? He was made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. More was going on at Calvary. More was afoot at Golgotha than what it seems to be in the surface reading of the Gospels. God literally was taking the curse of sin that we chose at that first tree in that first garden. And on that tree 2,000 years ago, he took the curse for us in our place. We're just getting started. There's so many beautiful things in this little book. But let me wind up tonight by saying this. Ultimately, you obeying God's word, you choosing to follow God's wisdom of your own volition, of your own choice. I'm not going to follow my wisdom, worldly wisdom. I'm not going to follow the dictates of my flesh. I'm going to follow God's wisdom. Even if I don't understand everything that he's written in his word for my good, I trust him enough, I love him enough, I'm going to choose God's wisdom. Ultimately, obeying God's word and following God's wisdom allows us to go to his holy heaven where I'm proud and thankful and so happy to announce to you that in heaven, it's the Garden of Eden all over again. And this time, it's for all eternity. Blessed are they that do his commandments, last chapter of your Bible, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. We lost it at a tree. But we're going to gain it back for all eternity in the presence of the tree of life and in the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's way more than a nice little poem to read because you're thinking sentimentally about marriage. Oh, it'll work for that. It's a great book to study. If you want good principles about how to relate as husband and wife, it's wonderful for that. But there's something deeper here. There's something far more powerful, far more beautiful, and far more eternal. You are his bride. He's so proud of you. He's so in love with you. He chose you and when you had nothing to bring to him you were just a poor peasant girl the king chose you the king loved you and the king's heart is toward you his attention is on you he watches your little everyday life he's interested in the things that burden your heart, that trouble your mind. He knows about them. He cares about them. But it's not about him chasing you down. He's already expressed his love. It's about us following after him like the little Shulamite girl follows after Solomon in this beautiful poem in the middle of your Old Testament. And so my prayer Tonight is Jesus. Cause me to hear your voice. I want to live my life with love and intimacy between me and my Savior. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and that they may enter in through the gates into that city. It's the garden of Eden all over again. Which is to say, there is no night so dark in your life that he cannot light it. There is no wrong in your life so evil that he cannot write it. There, there is no trial so strenuous that he cannot see you through. And there is no mistake so fatal that he cannot make it a miracle of his grace and his mercy because he wants you there at that royal wedding more than you can imagine. It will be the Garden of Eden, all over again. Would you lift up your hands and your voice in gratitude to our great God for what he has done for us? Would you just... Give Him praise and honor and glory. Would, would you reach after Him and chase after Him a little bit? And in, in light of all of His love, would you just express your love? In light of all of His goodness to you, would you use some choice words and give Him worship in this room tonight? Because the bridegroom is worthy of the love of the bride. The bridegroom is worthy of the intimacy of his bride. The bridegroom is worthy of the commendation and the acclamation of his bride. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. I worship you, God. I'm so in love with you, Jesus. I am so in love with you, Jesus. Oh my goodness, the Holy Ghost has descended here. The spirit of the bridegroom is here dwelling in his bride. It's beautiful and it's powerful. Those of you that are here in this house, would you stand right now? Let your hands and your voice just keep on going and worship God. There's a beautiful and powerful presence of our heavenly bridegroom here in this place. Jesus, cause me to hear your voice tonight. Cause me to hear your voice. Cause me to hear your voice. Oh, I worship you, Jesus. I worship you Jesus. I give you praise God. I give you praise God. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I give you praise. I give you praise. I give you praise. It has often been said that there's a language only husbands and wives share with each other. Do you realize that when you speak in other tongues, when you pray in the Spirit, you're speaking that language of love and intimacy that only you and your heavenly bridegroom share? I wish you'd use that beautiful gift. I wish you'd express that love to Him right now. Oh my goodness. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Oh, I thank you, God. I love you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus.